Alright, I want to welcome everybody to Grace Community Church this morning, and specifically to our continuing study of the book of Genesis together. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. We preach book by book, passage by passage through Scripture at Grace Community Church. And one of the many reasons why we do that is that we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And that confession is going to be tested this morning in Genesis chapter 34. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of worship. God, specifically for that gift that you just gave us, God, to gather together in the name of Jesus and to sing your eternal praise, Lord. God, I pray that you would remind each of us, God, that that's why we have a mouth and that's why we have breath in our lungs is to sing your praise, to give you the praise that is due your name. And Lord Jesus, we long for the day where we will follow you And worship you perfectly. We long for that day, Lord, where sin is forever removed from us. Where boredom and coldness are forever removed from us, Lord. But in this world, God, we we have decided to follow you. And even if it's not perfectly, it's sincerely, Lord. You are our King. And we have no other King besides you, Lord Jesus. And we gladly confess that You are Lord. You are Lord Jesus. You are King Jesus. You are mighty and majestic Jesus. The Creator of the ends of the earth. The One who is worthy of all praise. And we desire to please You, Lord. God, we thank You that You have ordained to rule Your church through Your Word. And we come to Your Word now and we want to submit to You as we come to Scripture as though we were submitting to the King of glory. God, we thank You, Lord, that You have determined to build up Your church through the preaching of Your Word. And we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit this morning that that we would hear You rightly, Lord. And that, that we would see Christ high and lifted up today. Lord, change us. By the power of Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 34 this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And profitable. And we're going to press into this obscure passage this morning. And this passage today is going to be a disturbing reminder of the sin-soaked world that we live in. Disturbing reminder. You'll see that very shortly. We're going to pick up this Genesis story right in the middle of the life of the patriarch Jacob. And he's just entered back into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Genesis chapter 33 ended with um, a few reminders for us that Upon his entry back into the land, he buys a field on the outskirts of Shechem. And we'll come back to that field. It's going to be really important for us as we close. But 
upon his coming back in to the promised land, two things immediately happen to Jacob. First, he's attacked by the sin-soaked world. And then Jacob and his family are tempted by this sin-soaked world. And this is important. These are important reminders for us as followers of Christ, but because we're still journeying, pilgrim, we're pilgrims journeying through this same sin-soaked world that is revealed to us. In Genesis chapter 34, we're waiting for the arrival of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, where righteousness reigns and where sin is forever banished. So this passage today, it ought to press home the words of Jesus that He tells us in John 16, verse 33. Jesus tells us, as followers of Christ, He says, in the world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. And Jesus encourages us, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Let's begin our time by reading our passage together. And since it's a longer passage, I want to ask everybody to stand up this morning as we read Genesis 34 together. We'll stand as we read the Word of God. These are the most important words that you'll hear in this sermon. These are God-breathed words without error. Beginning in verse 1, thus says the Lord, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the daughter of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. And so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter, Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us and give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 
The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will, we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Verse 18, these words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day... When they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we were introduced to Dinah. Back in the birth war narrative of chapter 30, where Jacob takes multiple wives and these women begin this sinful competition of how many children they can can birth for Jacob. And in that birth narrative, we find out that Dinah is the only daughter, the only little girl that God has given to the patriarch, Jacob. 
And something helpful for us to see the wickedness in this story is if we start to lay out the chronology of the book of Genesis, we find out a very important detail that this is a very young little girl in this story. Jacob tells Laban, uh, when he's uh, rebuking Laban, that he was in Laban's land for 20 years. For the first seven years, he worked for his wife. For the next seven years is that period of time that God gave him all of his children. Dinah and her half-brother Joseph were born around the same time at the very end of that second seven-year period. And putting that together in the book of Genesis means that when they left Laban's house to go back into the promised land, Dinah would have been about seven years old when they leave Laban's house. And then when we get to chapter 37, because Dinah and Joseph are about the same age, chapter 37 tells us that when Joseph is sold into slavery... By his brothers, he's 17 years old. So there's about a 10-year gap between the, the leaving Laban's house coming into the promised land and Joseph being sold into slavery. And this story happens right in the middle of that gap. Which means that this little girl is most likely about 12 years old in this story. Dinah's about 12 years old when this story Occurs. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used to describe her in verse 4 is a word that means little girl, young girl. And her youth only adds to the wickedness of what Shechem does to this little girl. He does this to a little girl. I want you to notice the verbs in verse 2, and this shows us the progression of of Shechem's brutality in this passage. The text tells us he saw her and then he seized her. He saw her and then he seized her. You know, one of the things I tell my little boys often, and I hope you're telling your little boys something similar to this, is that God made you a boy. God made you a man. God gave you strength. Not so that you would abuse those who are weaker than you, but so that you would defend those who are weaker than you. And I hope we're getting in our ears of our little boys often in this gender-confused world that we're not leaving them by themselves to find out what it really means to be a man. And this is what we see in this passage, that Shechem is distorting what it means to be masculine, what it means to be strong. And in this passage, instead of using his strength as a man created in the image of God to defend those who are weak, he uses his strength in this passage to rape a little girl, to force himself upon a little girl, to defile her, And to humiliate her. And this man is so twisted. This is the shocking reminders of the sin-soaked world that we live in. That Shechem in this passage, he's so twisted that after he does this to this little girl, he decides that he loves her and he wants her to be his wife. 
Today we would label this man, most likely we would call him a psychopath. That how in the world can these two things live in the same human mind that you would do this and then your very next move would be, I want to take this little girl to be my wife. Verse 3 tells us that he speaks tenderly to Dinah after she's abused. That phrase rendered literally is he speaks to her heart. He speaks to her heart after he has abused her. And so I want us to see the situation that Dinah is in, in this passage. That the one who has assaulted her is now attempting to comfort her. The one who has abused her is now the one who has, is attempting to comfort her. And I'll just ask you this question. How would you feel if your rapist tried to be your therapist? If the one who hurt you tried to be the one who comforted you? And this is exactly what we see Shechem doing in this passage. And we're not told until the end of the chapter, if you look ahead in verse 26... We're not told that his version of loving this little girl, Dinah, included taking her hostage in his house. And that's exactly what he and his father do after she's abused. She is locked away into the house of Shechem under the leadership of Hamor as both son and father go back to this family and seek to secure a marriage arrangement. So I want us to see this wickedness that's presented to us in this story. This is the same world that we live in. okay? Sin-soaked world. And periodically we get reminders that come close to home that this sin-soaked world that we live in is capable of outrageous acts of sin that should rightly shock us. That should rightly shock us. Verse 7 reminds us that this was an outrageous thing that this man did. A thing that ought not to be done. And verse 7 tells us that Dinah's brothers were furious. And they were right to feel the way they felt about what this man did to their daughter. Rage is an appropriate emotion to something that is outrageous. And we need to learn this. Okay, This is a right response in this passage to feel furious of this thing that was done to this little girl. The Bible reminds us that we're to be angry but we're to be angry and not sin. We're to be angry and not sin. And we're going to find out as this passage progresses that this response, this feeling of anger at these wicked, outrageous acts, this is a dangerous emotion in our hearts. Because what starts out right in the beginning can quickly fan into a flame of rage that blinds us to all the attributes of God. You know, one of the things that I think we could stand to be reminded of is that anger is part of an emotion that God feels. And if you're the type of person that says, you know, I never get angry about anything, I can't remember the last time that I was angry, then one of the things that this passage is going to do is it's going to call you to wake up to this sin-soaked world. 
Wake up to these outrageous acts of sin that are brought close to home. And and our reminder is that, that God's not like that. God's not like the person who says, I never get angry. I can't remember the last time I was angry. God's not like that, and and Jesus is not like that. In a real, perfect human body, the Bible tells us that Jesus loves righteousness, and he hates wickedness. That's what Jesus feels about sin, is he hates everything that is unrighteous. He hates everything that is that is wicked. And periodically we get these reminders that we're not living in Mayberry, make-believe universe, that we're living in a sin-soaked world. And I'll never forget that reminder that we received just a couple of years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, where in our city, just a few miles from where we're gathering this morning, we heard the story of a seven-year-old little boy who was kidnapped at the Kroger on I-55 and shot in the chest and murdered. In your city, that's the world that you wake up in every single day and live and move and have your being is a sin-soaked world. And we ought to feel outraged about these outrageous acts that ought not to be done. But we also need to be careful that this anger that we should feel towards sin, this is a dangerous emotion that can get away from us very quickly. After this family has been attacked by the world, and I think that's the picture for us, they're living in the promised land, and this sin-soaked world attacks this family, Hamor, the leader, in verse 8, he comes with a temptation for this holy family. And what's important here is the things, not only that he mentions, but the things that he doesn't mention. And so when he comes and he brings this marriage alliance to Jacob and his sons, notice that he doesn't mention anything about the abuse that just happened to this little girl. doesn't even mention it. He also doesn't mention this this fact that the girl that was abused, Dinah, their sister and Jacob's daughter, she's still being held hostage in this man's house. And her brothers are going to have to rescue her at the end of this chapter. And so without mentioning either one of those, he comes and he proposes a marriage treaty with Jacob and his sons. And in fact, he's after more than just an arranged marriage for Dinah and Shechem. Look at verse 9. He says, make marriages with us. That's plural. He's proposing as a solution to the situation that just transpired, that they intermingle as a people. That they give their daughters to the Shechemites, and the Shechemites receive the daughters... Um, of Israel, and they intermingle and intermarry as a people. And if we look at verse 16, and in fact twice in this passage, we're reminded that this intermingling would have meant that these two distinct peoples would have become one people. Would have become one people. And so this is a temptation that is being presented to the holy seed, the royal family, and if they go, go, go on with this alliance, with this treaty, the effects would have been catastrophic for the chosen family. And this is one of many, many places in Genesis 
where we're served by stepping back and remembering that this is not just a random story of a random family, that this family has been given those Abra- the Abrahamic covenant, those blessings to Abraham, that through Abraham is going to come this one that brings blessing to all the nations. And one of the ways that God has blessed this family is He set them apart to be a distinct, holy family. They're to be separate from the nations in order to bring blessing to the nations. And so they're being tempted here to forfeit their distinctness as the royal chosen family, the possessors of the blessing of Abraham. And Hamor sweetens the deal when he brings them this alliance and this treaty, and he, and he, and he points to all the financial benefits uh, uh, that would be there if they would just intermingle together and become one people. And so look at what he says in verse 10. Dwell and trade in the land and get property. Dwell and trade in the land and get property. This will be good for you. Life will be easy for you. You'll be prosperous here. And let's just be one big people. They're being tempted not only to cover up the abuse that just happened to their sister, they're also being tempted to lose their distinctness and forfeit the Abrahamic blessings. So one of the things that we can note is behind the scenes, Satan is at work in this passage of Scripture. Opposing the royal family. Opposing the promises of God. And Satan is at work in this story trying to attempt to corrupt the chosen seed. The chosen seed. And think of what that would have meant if he would have succeeded. That this family and no other family on planet earth, God chose to be the descendants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior of the world. That they were marked off for this holy purpose of being the ones that God chose to bring forth the the Christ. They were to remain distinct to bring forth the Christ who would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so we see a, a great temptation in this passage. The world assaults this family. And right on the back side of that, the world tempts this family. One of the things that we're told about Hamor in this passage is that he's a Hivite. You see that in verse 2, Hamor the Hivite. And the descendants of this family, as we continue to read the Old Testament, they are continuous thorn in the side of the people of God. The same thing that Hamor attempts to do in this passage, his his descendants attempt to do in a later generation of Israel. And so the first people that would have read the book of Genesis, you remember the author of Genesis is Moses. And that means that the first people that would have read this book would have been that generation that was getting ready to go into the promised land that God has promised, the the generation of Joshua, that they would enter in, that they would cleanse the land, purge the land, and dwell in the land that God has promised. And the first recipients of the book of Genesis would have read this story, and it should have landed on them as a warning not to intermingle with the nations, to remain distinct, so that these, these gracious purposes of God could be brought to fulfillment 
through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one of the sad things that we see in Scripture is that that first generation who should have heeded this warning actually falls prey to the, to the thing that they're being warned about in Genesis 34. And so Hamor is part of the Hivites. The Hivites. And listen to what Judges 3 tells us that these people were able to accomplish in Israel. Judges chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 say this, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These same descendants, they're still there. They weren't able to purge them from the land. And then we're told this, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. Sound familiar to this passage? Very next words. And they served their gods. And they served their gods. And that's what this intermingling and, and, and this intermarrying is about in the Old Testament. It has nothing at all to do with if you're of this race, you shouldn't marry this race. Nothing at all to do with that. It has everything to do is if you're a worshiper of Yahweh, you are not to intermingle with the pagan nations that call upon the name of false gods. This is the temptation that Jacob and his family are facing in Genesis 34, the temptation to intermingle, to marry the worship of Yahweh to the worship of false gods of the Hivites. And so the sons of Jacob, we see this in verse 13, that the sons of Jacob used this alliance and this offer, this marriage alliance that's made, and they used this as an opportunity to take vengeance for the sin that was committed against Dinah. Verse 13 tells us that they were deceitful, that they were deceitful in their response, and that they pretended to be willing to intermarry and intermingle and become one people, provided that every male in Shechem would be circumcised. And their deceit here, their deceitfulness here, just like earlier in the book of Genesis, their daddy Jacob's deceitfulness, it's sin against God. It's sin against God. And so what we're seeing pile up on us in Genesis 34 is sin stacked upon top of sin. Shechem is a place of sin. And not only did they deceive when, when they pretended to be willing to, be, to enter into this marriage alliance, the way they did it was blasphemous. Not only were they guilty of deceit, they were also guilty of blasphemy because they used the covenant sign as part of their deceit plot. If just your men will be circumcised like us, then we'll enter into this marriage alliance. And one of the things that we know about circumcision in the book of Genesis is this is the covenant sign for the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so one of the things that that sign means and that sign points to is that this group of people, the circumcised one, they're set apart. They're set apart. They don't worship the false gods. They're set apart to worship 
Yahweh. And yet these men defiled the sign. They put forth the, the sign of circumcision, and they have no intention of converting the Shechemites, converting them from the worship of the false gods to the worship of Yahweh. All thereafter is they're about to spill some blood, and they use the holy covenant sign to their murderous ends. This is blasphemy. Blasphemy. The only thing on their mind is killing. You know, I mentioned this just a moment ago, that one of the things that the Abrahamic blessing is meant to do is it's meant to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that's what that sign means. That sign points to a covenant that there's going to be blessing given to all the nations of the earth, that the seed of Abraham will bless the nations. And instead of using that sign to that holy end, this sign is used in this text to point to genocide and bloodshedding for the nations and not blessing for the nations. This is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Verse 25 shows us that they had everyone circumcised, not to make them holy, that's what it was meant for, but to make them sore. But to make them sore. You know, one of the things that many medical professionals in the room could tell you... um, is that surgery today ain't what it used to be. It ain't what it used to be. And there are many advances in modern medicine that make you know, routine medical uh, practices very different from what um, thousands of years of human history and generations experienced. And this ancient surgery to these grown men would have left these men in tremendous pain in a state of tremendous weakness. And the third day is presumably when they would have been at their weakest. And at this precise moment is when two of the sons of Jacob step forth, Simeon and Levi. Now these are the full-blooded brothers of Dinah. They have the same mama and daddy as Dinah. And these two of all the sons of Jacob, they step forward and they grab their swords, their blades, and they butcher the entire city. They butcher the entire city. They enter house after house and they shed blood. They enter into house after house in the midst of weakness to someone who cannot defend themselves and they kill and they kill and they kill until there's nobody left in the city to kill anymore. They kill all the males in the city. Verse 26, they kill Hamor, the the father. They kill Shechem, the prince with the sword. And then the text tells us that they rescued Dinah from her being held hostage in Shechem's house. And if that wasn't bad enough, we're told in that same paragraph that all the other sons of Jacob, they enter into this bloodshedding and they go and begin to plunder these dead bodies. Now think about how vicious that is. Plunder means you go to a corpse and you take the possessions that are on that person. You snatch them off a dead body and you put them in your pockets. And this is what this text tells us, that they plunder and they leave nothing in this city. Nothing is left in this city. They take everything. Now, 
it's important for us to understand that what Shechem did was outrageous in Israel. It's a thing that ought never to be done. It's outrageous what this man did. Used his strength to force himself upon a little girl. Outrageous sin. Outrageous sin. But the response of these brothers, this is not equitable justice. And that Old Testament principle, eye for an eye, this is not that. This is not that. This is like um, a a thousand eyes for an eye. It's not equitable. The response is not measured. It's not just. Shechem alone deserved to be judged for what he did, not the whole city. Not the whole city. And so what we see in this story is unholy vengeance, exponential revenge, that anger that they had towards that outrageous sin, it caused them to respond with vengeance and wrath. And rage that blind them to justice. We're reminded in their response of this uh, um, murderous figure earlier in the book of Genesis chapter 4, a man named Lamech. Lamech sings the first gangster rap song in all of creation and that he exalts for killing people in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. He even goes as far as to brag about how many men he's killed and that he's killed a man even for touching him, even for looking at him wrong. And that's the unmeasured vengeance that the sons of Jacob take into their hands in this passage. This was not equitable justice. This was unholy exponential vengeance. Vengeance. And there's some difficulties as we read the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament, because later in that conquest generation, under the leadership of Joshua, God would command that generation to purge the promised land. He declared war on the inhabitants of the land, and they strapped on the sword, and they purged the land in the name of the one true God. But this is not that time period. They're not in the land, the the generation of conquest. The patriarchs aren't called to warfare. They're not called to take the land by the sword. They're called to live in the land by faith. And this is what you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doing in the promised land. They're wandering like pilgrims. Just like we're wandering through this world. And they're chunking up altars. And they're calling on the name of the Lord. And so even though God would command that conquest generation to purge the land, He's given no commandment to the sons of Jacob to do what they did. There's no divine sanctions to take the sword and kill everybody in the city. And that means that these men are cold, calculated killers. Cold, calculated killers. And so I want you to think about the progression In Genesis 34, we have sin upon sin upon sin in this passage. And I want you to think about how wicked what it was that Shechem did. Outrageous thing that he did. And then I want you to consider that Simeon and Levi, they did worse. They did worse. One man deserved to be punished for what he did, but these two take the sword and they murder a whole people. They shed the blood of an entire city for one man's 
sin. There's nothing just about their response. Nothing just about their response. This is why Jacob rebukes his sons in verse 30. Jacob tells them that because of what they've done, they've put the holy seed in danger. They put the, that royal family that's set apart to bring forth the Christ, the recipients of the Abrahamic blessing. Abraham fears retribution from the pagan nations that not only he would be destroyed, but his whole household would be destroyed in vengeance for what his sons have done. And sadly, Simeon and Levi, at the end of this chapter, they're unrepentant for what they've done. They actually justify their actions in verse 31. And they say, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's the response to their daddy's rebuke. And that, that, that question and that response is important for what it doesn't say. Because the question is not, should Shechem have been punished for what he did? Absolutely, he should have. The question is, should you have killed the entire city for one man's sin? They're unrepentant in this text. And Jacob never forgets what they did. He never forgets what his son did, what his two sons did in Shechem. And later, at the end of his life, when he blesses his children, in Genesis 49, he actually curses their anger that they showed in this story. Turn with me quickly to Genesis 49, beginning in verse 5. This is Jacob's words, prophetic to Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. And I will scatter them in Israel. So I want us to see that this story of Shechem, this place is a place of sin. The story goes from bad to worse. We go from rape to deceit to genocide in this passage of Scripture. This is the sin-soaked world that every one of us live in. Shechem is a place of sin. I want to point out several takeaways that this passage leaves us with as followers of Christ. There's several moral takeaways, and most of the things in this text are warnings of what we shouldn't do. And then I also want us to remind us that the grace of God is on display as well in Genesis chapter 34. The first reminder that this text gives us, and we mentioned this many times already, is that we live in a sin-soaked world. We live in a sin-soaked world. One of the things that can happen in a local church as you begin to intermingle with the people of God and you look to your right and you look to your left and most of the people in your life are holy and calling upon the name of the Lord, one of the things that can quickly slide in to our hearts and to our minds 
is this misunderstanding that we live in a make-believe Mayberry version of God's creation. And this story reminds us of outrageous sin and rebellion against God. That this creation that we live in, though there's many good gifts all around us, this creation that we live in is in rebellion to God. It has been hijacked by sin. Some commentators actually blame the patriarch Jacob for what happens in this story. And the way that they do that goes something like this, that if Jacob, when he came back into the promised land, if Jacob would have just went straight to Bethel, none of this would have happened. None of this would have happened. And this is a response. This is God's discipline to him. This is what happens when, when, when he should have went to Bethel and he didn't go straight to Bethel. And many commentators take this position that at the end of the day, what we see in Genesis 34 is Jacob's fault. Jacob's fault. And there are many reasons to disagree with that way of reading um, this chapter of Scripture. But one of the things that I want to point out to you is beware of soft versions of the prosperity gospel. And here's what a soft version of the prosperity gospel goes like. Not just if you serve Jesus, you'll have a lot of money, but it can sound like this. If you serve Jesus and you obey God, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And see, this is Jacob's fault in this text. And I think this is the exact wrong way to read this passage of Scripture. I think what we're being shown in Genesis 34 is this is what we can expect as followers of Christ in a sin-soaked world. We can expect that this world will attack us. That this world, because it's been hijacked by sin, that we're going to be brought face-to-face with outrageous acts in this world. And many of you all across this room know exactly what I'm talking about. As the, the front row seat to human rebellion is brought very closely into your own life or into the life of your family. And this, is, this text is meant to awaken us to the words of Jesus that in this world you will have tribulation. And He calls us to take heart because He's the one that's overcome this world. First takeaway is that we wake up to the true condition of this world. The second is that we're warned in this text from aligning ourselves with this world. This world always stands ready to seduce the people of God. Always. Always. The same temptation that Jacob faced in this passage of Scripture is the temptations that Christians face on a daily basis to intermingle, to be seduced, to lose our salt, to lose our distinctiveness in this world. And this comes through a temptation, through a form of being tempted to make unholy alliances, unholy friendships in this world. And the Word of God tells us, don't do this. This is a commandment in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, commands us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do you know that's not Christian fundamentalism? That's biblical Christianity. The Bible commands us, do not be 
unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? How many people do you know that have you know, drowned themselves in, in many sorrows in their life by trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus Christ? It doesn't work like this. They're antithetical. The Bible, the Bible calls worldliness sin. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The Bible calls for a real separation. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Be a distinct holy people that calls upon the name of Christ. The Bible reminds us that, that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we need to be warned of the temptations, the allurements of the world that are all around us. The things that are meant to blind us to the things of eternity. And it comes to us almost always the same way that it came to Jacob in this passage. Make this treaty, you know, make this friendship, make this alliance with the world, and it'll be well with you. You'll be comfortable. You'll be prosperous. Things will be easy for you if you just make this, this, this one caveat, this one alliance. If you'll just give in just a little here and a little there, look how prosperous you'll be. This is the voice of the world. And we ought not to let the allurements of the world blind us to the true state of things. The Bible tells us that the world is a sinking ship. It's a sinking ship. Think about this. If you know what you know about the Titanic, and somebody offered you a ticket right now, and you know exactly how that story ends, would you get on board? And that's exactly what Scripture tells us. The world is a sinking ship. It's going down. It's going down. The world will be judged by the wrath of God because of sin. Because of sin. Matthew 16, Jesus tells us, and you ponder this question this morning, what will it profit a man? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? He forfeits his soul. We ought to be warned this morning about the dangers of worldliness, the alluring temptation of worldliness. And then thirdly, this story warns us about a sinful response to sin. A sinful response to sin. And this is tricky stuff. This is tricky stuff because we ought to hate sin. We ought to hate our sin. It ought to make us angry. And we ought to hate everything that dishonors God in every corner of creation. But this story shows us how dangerous these emotions are. That, that anger in the heart of a fallen, sinful human being that's prone to wander is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And in this story, these brothers are innocent until they're not anymore. They're innocent in their disposition that they're bothered by the sin. They hate what has been done. They're outraged by the sin, but their anger overtakes them. It's like a fire that consumes them, and it blinded them to all reasonable judgment. They went way beyond justice in their response to sin. And this is why the Bible commands us, this is why the Bible condemns personal vengeance. And we see this in the New Testament. 
And God knows how hard it is that when we're sinned against, for us to be the ones to respond in a just manner to that sin. He knows how hard that is. And that's why the Bible commands us to to abstain from personal vengeance and to leave vengeance to the Lord. This is one of many reasons why the Bible places just responses, legal, judicial responses to human sin out of our personal hands and into the hands of magistrates and judges that God has ordained. Because of how easy it is in our response to being sinned against that we sin in return. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says this, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. There are many people in this room, I have no doubt about it, that you have been done wrong, and some of you have been done outrageously wrong. And this is one of those reminders to not let that anger in your heart overwhelm you. That you trust God. Vengeance is His. All sin, it will be punished. Nobody's getting away with anything. Sin throughout all of eternity will be laid upon those who commit it or laid upon Christ. And in either case, it will be punished. There will be just punishment for every act of sin and rebellion. Every act. And the last thing I want us to point us to in this passage is that this sin-soaked world of Genesis 34 is exactly the world that Jesus has entered into to save us from our sins. To save us from our sins. He's so holy that these outrageous things that we do ought to make Him recall and banish us from His presence Forever, but Jesus is the one who came into this world, this sin-soaked world of rebellion, headed for the wrath of God. And I want to show us this amazing connection, Genesis 34, and this New Testament connection to the Gospel of John in John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me really quickly to John chapter 4. Most of you know John chapter 4 as this uh, story where Jesus engages this woman of Samaria, this woman at the well. And, And we know from this story that Jesus intentionally heads into this particular area... Samaria, Samaria, these religious half-breeds, they they halfway worship Yahweh and they halfway worship other gods. There's a mixed religion and therefore they're looked at as outcasts in Israel. And Jesus intentionally heads to this area. And He intentionally engages this woman in John chapter 4. And something that many of you may not know is that this place that He intentionally diverts Himself to In John 4, it's a Samaritan village called Sychar. But as we study the Word of God, this this is the exact geographic location of Genesis 34. This is ancient Shechem in this passage of Scripture. Let's start reading in, in, in in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria... 
Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his sons Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so we're told that this particular place, Sychar, this town of the Samaritans, is the place where Jacob had a field. The place where Jacob gave the field to Joseph. And Jacob had a well there. And as we read the book of Genesis, the only piece of land that the patriarch Jacob owns is this field outside of Shechem. And so we have this intentional parallel in this passage that Jesus has intentionally singled out this exact geographic location as Genesis 34. Exact same location. And on this same piece of ground that is remembered in the book of Genesis for rape, deceit, and genocide, Jesus makes this a place of salvation. In John chapter 4, he transforms it. He transforms it. Where we once saw outrageous human sin, we see the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, Shechem becomes an important place in the Old Testament. Joseph, uh, Jacob passes this field to Joseph, and then later in the book of Joshua chapter 24, you remember those bones that Israel carries out of Egypt? As a memorial, the bones of Joseph, they actually are buried in this same field, in this same story that we're reading. This is where Jesus engages this this sinful woman. And listen, He intentionally singles out the worst sinner in the city. The worst sinner in the city. We're told that this woman has been married five times in John chapter 4. That she has chronically used her body to rebel against her Creator. She's been married five times. She's had five husbands. And by the time Jesus finds her, she is currently still living a lifestyle of fornication in this passage. And Jesus singles her out, goes directly to her. And you know what He does? This woman who deserves death and judgment for her sins, what does Jesus do? He offers her to drink from the water that will give her eternal life. This is who Jesus is. John chapter 4, verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. So I want you to think about the contrast and the radical change that the Lord Jesus has made with His coming to us. That He comes into this sin-soaked world and He transforms. And He gives grace where we deserve death. And so I want you to think about the outcomes, the difference in outcomes. Same geographic location. In Genesis 34, the outcome is the whole city is slaughtered. Every male in the city is left wallowing in their blood. There's there's sin and death only in Genesis chapter 4. And in the same town, upon the coming of Jesus Christ, is transformed. And everybody in this city begins to sing the song of salvation. Listen to what they say in John 4 verse 42. And they said to this sinful woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves, 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. This is who Jesus is and this is what He does. He's the Savior of the world and He saves sinners just like you and just like me. He transforms. He transforms the city of Shechem. It's not the place of sin in John chapter 4. It's the place of salvation. He transformed the city, and in the same way He transformed that city, He can transform you. He can transform you. Your acts of rebellion, your acts of sin, your deeds of wickedness that the Bible says if God were to pay you what you owe, that the wages of your sin would be death. Jesus transforms, and He can make the place of sin the place of salvation. And I want to call us this morning, all across this room, to put our trust in Christ. Put your trust in Christ. He's the only one who can save you from your sin. He's the only one who can transform you into a new creation. He's the only one qualified, and listen to this, He's the only one that came for you. He's the only one that... There's nobody else coming for you. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given through which we can be saved and our sins can be washed away forever. Only Jesus. And this passage reminds us that no one is beyond His reach. No one is beyond His reach. Do you know that these two killers, Simeon and Levi... We're told in the book of Revelation that their names are carved into the walls of the eternal city. They're saved. Their sins are washed away through the blood of Christ. They're forgiven. Right now, they're calling upon the name of the Lord. They've been transformed and made new by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Scandalous grace. Amazing grace that saves a wretch like me. Just like Simeon, just like Levi, and just like this sinful woman in John chapter 4. And that's the same grace that's offered to every single one of us in Jesus Christ. No one is beyond His grace. No one is beyond His transformation. And that ought to cause us to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. God, we thank You for all of Scripture. God, we thank You for all of the words that You have breathed out. God, we thank thank You, Lord, that in Your perfect wisdom, that no words are wasted, no words are pointless. And God, I pray that You would please, Lord, that You would be pleased to use Your Word today to build us up in Jesus Christ. Lord, cause the preaching of Your Word to bear fruit in this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.